yes, I'm still teaching. I'm teaching at Ter Terry Hill Mennonite High School now. And so uh, not eighth graders anymore, just, you know, ninth graders one year older and uh, enjoy that. Uh, you're privileged tonight. My f entire family came along. I don't think any of them came to my other topics except my wife went al along a couple times. So our five daughters are here. Caitlin teaches at Peckway Christian School. Leah and Seth are at Terry Hill High School. And then our three younger girls, I guess they disappeared. Um, they're making friends downstairs and they uh, go to Shalom to school. So happy to be here. And for 20 years, I could say I was a deacon at Faith Mennonite Fellowship. And I introduced, someone asked me tonight when I walked in, where are you from? And I said, Faith. And then it only hit me. No, I'm not from there anymore. Uh, so Cross Point is the newest Keystone Church, I believe. We started in Wyomissing back in August and are um, very delighted to be meeting there. Had a building come up that was very suitable for us and we're able to purchase it and so very happy to be part of the uh, outreach there at Cross Point. If you've ever been to Berkshire Mall, it's basically straight across the highway from there. All right, uh, this evening, yes, the topic is sort of a funny title, Admiring Nature While Denying a Designer. So I think the Bible School Committee had the idea that you're not supposed to do this. This is not what you're supposed to do. Um, so uh, at the conclusion, I'm going to ask you this question. What is the one created thing in nature that can most distinctly and most accurately represent the designer God? What is one created thing in nature that can most, most distinctly and most accurately represent the designer God? Two conclusions we'll come to is that we must, as we admire nature, we must acknowledge the designer. It's a both and. We, we, acknowledge, we admire nature that's natural, and in that we must acknowledge the designer. And then uh, we probably won't have a lot of time for this, but as we admire nature, I think we should use nature as a way to draw people's attention toward, turn them toward admiring the designer and using that as a tool for ministry. So the idea in the title is we admire nature, we look at something with wonder, we say, wow, um, nature is defined as basically everything except humans and the things humans make. So, you know, it would be, yeah, that's basically the definition. The physical world, collectively including plants, animals, the landscapes, and other features of the earth except man and the things that man has made. And so I think most of us, if we're normal, we like nature. We like the things that are outside of us. Uh, and then a designer, I think we have the idea there, um, the idea that this world um, has design built into it. And when a person looks at something, when a person looks at a designed thing, what are some questions that they naturally ask? Who designed it? Why was it designed? Maybe say, what's its purpose? How does it work if it's not evident what the thing is supposed to do? And so we begin to look at these things with curiosity and, uh, and break it down until we usually find design. So 
there's a whole argument out there. The intelligent design movement talks about design inference. They say when you see a design thing, you make an inference to design. You say, I see design, therefore there has to be a designer. Some of the examples that they use, um, if you are in dry, sandy Egypt, you're walking across the desert, you see this thing that stands up and it looks like a pyramid and you say, oh, that's a pyramid. Your first uh, inclination is not to look around and say, well, it looks like the same stuff that's lying around in the dirt here everywhere around me. It must have just blown up there into that structure and it's just uh, random natural forces created that. That's not natural to think that way. You stop and you pause and you look at that and you say, no, that was a design thing. I wonder why it's there. I wonder how it's there. Who built it? How old is it? Uh, and we ask all of these things about the design of it. Or if you're driving across uh, South Dakota and you're driving across a flat part and there are these rock outcroppings as you drive and you drive and there's nothing but rock outcroppings and another one. And then you come to one that has George Washington uh, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, and Theodore Roosevelt on the face of that rock outcropping, your first uh, inclination is to say, oh, that's Mount Rushmore, okay? Your first inclination is not to say, oh, that's neat. That one has a different design than the other hundred that we just passed, okay? So when we see design, um, we know it. it, it like clicks with us. Um, if, if you would stand around at Mount Rushmore and argue uh, for the validity of random natural forces creating that face of that mountain as you see it, um, you'd probably be written off as crazy. Um, people would not listen to you. It, it, it's obvious, it's a design thing. And so, therefore, there had to be a designer. His name was Gutsum Borglum, and about 400 workers. Uh, he dedicated, I think it was like 10 or 12 years of his life and his workers there to design that thing. And so, the intelligent design movement tells us there's two things that are needed to make what they call a design inference. To, to see something and say, oh, there must be a designer. So the first thing they say is it has to be improbable. So random natural forces cannot account for it. So Mount Rushmore, random natural forces can't account for it. Uh, pyramids, random natural forces can't account for it. Uh, it demonstrates that something is working against the second law of thermodynamics. Now, does anyone remember what the second law of thermodynamics is? It can be summed up in one word. The one word is, oh, someone was going to say it. Yeah, everything breaks down. Everything tends toward disorder. Um, the scientific word is entropy. Um, the amount of usable energy in the universe is getting to be less and less. Um, the idea is, yeah, um, Entropy, the, the concept of disorder. So when you see a design thing, you say, okay, there's some, there had to be energy expended here to work against that, okay? It's not probable that that would be there except something 
some energy was expended. Something's working against random natural causes to make that happen. Um, some of you left home and came here tonight and you're gonna have to go home and you're gonna have to expend some energy because entropy was at play before you left, okay? And so there's things thrown here and thrown there and it's gonna take some energy to put it back together again. Okay, so improbability. And the second thing is specification. When you see a design thing, um, you say, oh, that matches something else that I know about, or it looks like something else that I've seen before. And so if you see a pyramid, you say, well, it looks like some kind of structure. Um, maybe it looks like, well, maybe you've seen pictures. Um, it, it, to you, it looks like some sort of man-made structure. You, you can make that uh, connection in your mind. Or if you see Mount Rushmore, you can even tell which faces of which presidents are carved in those rocks and you say, oh, I've seen those faces before. Uh, you might have saw them in a picture um, and now you see them carved in the rock here. And so uh, it needs to be improbable and it needs to match something that um, sort of clicks with you. So this intelligent design movement uh, gives us lots of good arguments. They're, they're the way they talk about things, their scientific uh, evidences are really good. Uh, the problem is, is that they very, not necessarily emphatically, but they, they, for, they keep God out of the picture. They do not use scripture at all um, and they very in, intentionally sideline any particular religion. It's, a group, it, it's science saying that there has to be, these, be a designer and it's the intelligent design movement, but they're extremely intentional about not naming the designer. Um, I'm guessing it's probably so they themselves can get along because they probably would name different gods uh, as, as the designer. So, uh, I think it is natural uh, to see design things. We ask, who is the designer? Um, why did he design it? And what is communicated in the design? Uh, the unfortunate thing is that the foundation of science is still built on the concept of chemical evolution. So, there's sort of another discussion we're starting here, and that is, the, the discussion of life, how does life begin? And so the, the foundation that science is still building on is that there was the right chemicals with the right energy that came together in the primordial ocean and it got that first life being together and from that 3.3 billion years ago, you know, the evolutionary tree has sprung up and here we are today. So uh, that foundational uh, chemical evolution is exactly against everything that we just talked about, right? There, there's just no way to explain that in terms of the scientific laws because that chemical evolution is definitely working against entropy and we might get to that a little bit later. So we could ask the question is, uh, is design evident in nature or is nature just random? When you look at nature, 
Uh, you're looking at a sunset, you're looking at the mountains, you're looking at the snow yesterday. Is it designed or is it just random? What do you see when you see nature? I think when I look at nature, I see design, I see order, I see beauty. Um, and then the second question would be, should we make the same inferences to design for natural things as we do for man-made things? So you see the examples I gave were man-made things. So there, there's something that clicks with us when we see a man-made thing, we can quickly make that inference to design. Should we make that same logic jump when we see a God-made thing, is it okay to make that jump? I think it is um, because I think it resonates with us, who we are as people made in the image of God. And so we are wired to look for that order and design. And when we see it, it clicks with us as being designed. So I have a suggestion here, and that suggestion is that mankind studies nature with an inborn sense that they will find design because we live in a world ruled by order and design. So whether you like it or not, people are born into a world um, that has order and design built into it. You can't get away from it. It's, it's impossible to get away from it. So uh, we have a world that's ruled by day and by night. There's seasons of the year, there's gravity, there's air pressure, there's water pressure. There's all of these things that are just, they're, they work just because that is the way it is. It's the laws of nature. And so uh, as we live in a world that's ruled by design, I think that just wires us to look for design. And so... Uh, in the modern age of telescopes, sorry, microscopes and imaging, uh, we've sort of got obsessed with breaking things down into smaller pieces until we find design. For example, if, uh, so this is soil sifters and pulled them out of my cabinet at school and they just have a big screen in the top and then the next one, they're always hard to get apart, smaller screen and a smaller screen and then in the very bottom are the particles that came through the very smallest screen. There's still some there. Um, and so we would label these, you know, bigger than sand. So it's gravel and sand in these two compartments, silt in here, and then there's clay down here. And then you figure out what percentage is in each of them. You put a hunk of dirt in the top here and you shake that thing around. Okay, and you figure out what, per, what percent is in each of these. And then you do the soil triangle thing and you figure out if you have loamy clay or clay loam or sandy loam or loamy sand and you know all these fine distinctions on the soil triangle. And you say, well, big deal, what does that matter? Well, uh, clay particles down here, the very smallest, you know, that dirt doesn't seem like much, okay? What's in dirt? Is there, is there any design in dirt? Well, as we break it down, we get to these really small clay particles, and if you play with them with a little metal anything under a microscope, you'll see them dancing around because clay particles tend to take on a net negative charge, and your soil nutrients 
are generally what charge? Positive charge. We don't have any farmers here. Or they're farmers that don't know what's actually happening out there in the field. So why does we put a formless hunk of dirt in the top here and we started breaking this down and we figure out that we have these clay particles because of their size and their composition they take this net negative charge and they're like this magnet that's pulling all those soil nutrients into your plant and it increases the cation exchange capacity of your soil and that leads to a chemistry lesson that's really really complicated really really fast and I can't really explain it to you other than there's something called cation exchange capacity and it has to do with ammonium and ammonia taking on a positive charge. So you want to have some clay in your soil if you're a farmer. Do you want your soil to be all clay? No, it needs to have some water and air in there too. Okay, so um, there's design in things as formless and seemingly designless as dirt. Um, in 400 BC, 400 years before Christ, uh, there was a Greek named Democritus who said, all matter is made of these things that are uncuttable. You know, if you take everything in the whole universe, you could break it down and you get to these things that are really small. And so everything around us is made up of this recipe of like these basic things that are uncuttable. And anyone know what the word, Greek word uncuttable is? Atomos. And we're still talking about atoms in chemistry class 2,400 years later. The word hasn't changed. So the idea, uh, the, the Greeks had the idea, um, they had four what they called elements or atoms, four kinds of atoms. There was earth atoms, uh, which they called the lithosphere. Those were solid things. And they had uh, water atoms, which was a hydrosphere that was liquid things. They had air, which was the atmosphere, which was gaseous things. And then there was fire, which they couldn't really quite explain what fire was, but it's sort of like plasma. So 2,400 years ago, they already knew, you know, there's these four essential elements, earth, water, air, and fire. There's solid, liquid, gas. And then there's this plasma-like stuff, fire, it's, uh, you know, fire had more energy than the other things. And so we have this idea that there's matter and energy and, and science is, is building on those ideas and hasn't gotten too far down the road uh, in terms of explaining them farther, except that we have a periodic table now with 114 elements or whatever there are. And we are pretty convinced that's, you know, about the end of it. That, that's how many there actually are. Uh, the Greeks also um, had this idea that there had to be something else in those four elements. There had to be something else that held them together, there, that, that sort of gave them life. Um, and so uh, they called it uh, ether or the quintessential element. Um, it was like this fifth element. It was like the air that the gods breathed. It's, it's what the planets and the heavenly bodies were made of out there in space. Um, it was this perfect, indescribable quality that gave essence and meaning and life to the other four elements. 
And so for thousands of years, mankind has had this concept that there's some energy or force or God um, behind the physical world. And you still, I think you still see this in um, modern science. Carl Sagan was uh, an atheist astronomer, and I think it was him who first uh, coined this phrase, we are all stardust. And so you hear these high-level scientists talking about, you know, their topic, whatever it is, and that's a phrase that's thrown around a lot. Um, you know, we are all stardust. So how does that make you feel? Always in that secular realm, it's supposed to make you, it's like lifting you up really high by your own bootstraps, like you really are something, like you are made of the same stuff as the stars out there, and that's supposed to make you feel good about yourself, and it's supposed to give you meaning and purpose, um, is what I take from the way they use that phrase. And so, again, we're, we're at this idea that it's not just Christians that have this idea that there's some force at work behind um, the natural world out there. Uh, another way to think about this, um, we're talking about the idea that mankind has this incurable desire to break things down and he will break things down smaller and smaller and smaller until he finds design. If he doesn't find design, he'll keep breaking it down smaller until he finds it. So what does a doctor do if you go to the doctor and you're sick? Well, you're a whole organism, and so he starts to break you down. He doesn't actually dissect you, but he intellectually begins to dissect you. And he asks where it hurts, and what are the symptoms, and how are you feeling? And so you have the whole organism and he tries to figure out what organ system might not be working, what particular organs not working. And then if it's down in the level of tissues and cells where he can't actually see what's wrong, then he's, you know, he gets images and scans and whatever to try to find out what's wrong with you. And then uh, when you're done at the doctor, he has diagnosed you and he figured out you know, what organ or tissue or cell is having trouble, and he sends you out the door with what? A prescription for chemicals, right? And so then you start from the bottom up, and the, that medication, those chemicals, alter your experience from the bottom up. And so even in medicine, we've been doing this thing, we break it down till we find the well, we have to know what the design is, and in that design, we find out what's not working, and then we medicate it from the bottom up. What we talked about earlier is um, that these six levels are given and taught, they're very helpful in understanding the human body in that we have chemicals that come together to make cells, the cells make tissues, the tissues make organs, the organs make organ systems which make up the whole organism, make up you. But no one, and science itself, has not been able to explain in ways that don't violate science how we get from chemicals to life, okay? Or chemicals to cells, because the reality is all of the laws of science say that life starts right here, it doesn't start down here. We have the law of biogenesis which says 
life comes from other life. And we have the cell theory that says cells come from other cells. And so um, the whole foundation of science from here down, uh, which is a chemical evolution theory, has yet to be proved. In fact, they violate their own science to even suggest that that chemical evolution theory um, would be valid. Okay, so we're finding all sorts of design in nature and we are using that to understand uh, the fact that there is a designer. All right, uh, the title assumes, well, maybe we should do this yet. Uh, models are very helpful in uh, science. Some of you were watching models of the storm, right? You have a map and then you have all sorts of imaging and radar that overlaps and has models from the past history and they, they tell you what they think the storm is gonna do and you can see it you know, swirl across the screen and then it actually does snow sometimes like they say it's supposed to. Um, so models are very helpful in science but um, well, I guess we'll just say it right up front. Um, what kinds of things do you model? Why would you make a model? Okay, it's a replica of the original. It demonstrates something else, right? It, it's, uh, you might make a model, you might make a, a drawing of a house and then you build the house. You um, make a model of some bigger thing to represent how it works. And so um, there's this thing that we talk about in advanced biology, it's called the sliding filament theory of skeletal muscle contraction. And so, uh, we go into this big long uh, spiel about how your muscles work. So how do they work? Well, they get, you know, they contract, right? So they, they go like that and they move. But actually a muscle needs to be attached by a tendon to a bone, but it needs to cross a joint, right? It wouldn't, it wouldn't do any good if your muscle was attached here and here to the same bone, okay? It could contract all day and it wouldn't move anything. So you need, a skeleton, uh, you need a muscle attached uh, to a bone uh, by a tendon that crosses a joint. So those are the four things you need for uh, a muscle to move. But then we're obsessed with this idea that we need to break it down farther until we find design. How does the muscle itself actually move? Well, um, muscle is striated. Uh, you know that because if you cut your chicken the one way, it just comes right apart. And if you try to cut it the other way, it's it's uh, in strands, that's what striated means, it's, it's in strands. So you know that muscle is striated. So we look at it under a microscope and we see that there's dark bands and light bands. And we say, oh, well the dark bands are dark because they're thick and the light bands are light colored because they're thin. And then it gets really technical and they name the dark bands or the thick filaments myosin and the thin filaments actin. And then they break it down into a unit and they say, 
that this unit of muscle is a sarcomere and it's attached at this thing called a Z-disc because it looks like a Z. And then you have the sodium that comes in from the nerve and it rushes into the muscle and that releases a calcium which makes the heads on the myosin, the thick filaments, uh, stand up and pull the uh, thin filaments together. And then they give us this really nice model and it looks like this. This is how your muscles work. This is the model, okay? It goes like that, okay? Uh, now the model, uh, okay, the drawing in the book is a little bit more complicated than this, but that's the essence. Here's a sarcomere of muscle. It's a connected at a Z-disc, because it's sort of like a Z, and you have thick filaments and thin filaments, and it's the thin filaments, technically, that move back and forth. In fact, they can go past each other, so my model isn't actually that great. But that's how your muscles move, you know, believe it or not. That's, and why do we make models? You can only make a model of something that is designed. Does that make sense? It'd be fruitless to make a model of something that didn't have design. The fact that we make models shows that we live in a designed world. All right. Uh, the title assumes that people admire nature, and I think we can say that's true. The tourism industry says people like things in nature. Um, where do people that live in the city go for refreshment? They go to the park, okay? They get out in nature, they de-stress, they refocus, they reset. How do they do that? They get away from everything that's people and people made and they go out into nature. So the big question for us is, uh, to what degree should Christians admire nature? So are you in danger of admiring nature too much? Okay, so, you know, we're sort of down on the people out there that um, see the design in nature and they don't acknowledge the designer. Uh, but is it possible for us to admire nature too much? So we could look um, at Paul on Mars Hill um, in Acts 17. In Isaiah 40, um, God asks, well, why don't you turn there? Isaiah chapter 40, and then also in chapter 44, uh, we're going to breeze over these uh, sections here. God asks a very pointed question through Isaiah. In Isaiah 40 and verse 18, fairly common passage. Isaiah 40, verse 18, the idolatry question. To whom then will ye liken God, or what likeness will ye compare unto him? The workman melteth a graven image, and a goldsmith spreadeth it over with gold, and casteth silver chains. He that is so impoverished that he hath no oblation, chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeketh unto him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that shall not be moved. So we have this guy, and he is making an idol. Um, he might make it out of silver or gold, or if he's poor, he'll make it out of wood. And so I think what this, these verses are saying is God's image always suffers when we compare him or represent him with physical things, things of nature. We bring him down and make him into things of nature, make him out of things of nature. 
verse 25, to whom then will you liken me or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and behold who hath created these things that bringeth out their host by number. He calleth them all by names by the greatness of his might for that he is strong in power, not one faileth. So what he's saying here is uh, creator God stands superior and above his creation. He is not to be brought down into his creation. His command over creation shows his greatness. His glory is above the earth. In Isaiah chapter 44, um, my Bible calls that section the folly of idolatry. If you don't know this story, go home and read it. It's a great illustration of what idolatry really is. The short version is this. Uh, A man grows a tree He even cultivates it. He makes sure the vines don't grow up it. He makes sure it gets plenty of sunlight. He might even put fertilizer on it. And that tree grows, and then he cuts down the tree, and he uses some of that wood from that tree to cook and make his food. He uses it in the fire to make himself warm, and he takes a specific chunk out of that tree, and with extra care, he carves out an idol And when he gets done, what does he do? In uh, Isaiah 44, maybe about verse 18. Actually, I'm not sure on that verse. He falls down to it, and what does he say? Deliver thee, for thou art my God. So here's this tree. He cultivated it. He caused it to grow. He's using some of it to cook his food. He's using some of it to warm himself. And out of that same wood that he's burning uh, for, for, uh, t- yeah, for to stay warm, he makes an idol and he falls down and says, Deliver me for thou art my God. That's the idolater's prayer. And uh, it's very helpful to understand that. Uh, see, if you have to make your own God, then who's God? If you have to make your own God, then who's really God? Yeah, you are. And so that is really helpful to understand that prayer because do people pray that prayer to things other than wood carvings that they made themselves? That prayer is prayed to a lot of man-made things that aren't made of wood or hay or stubble or whatever. They might be prayed to... um, Well, you name it. How do you identify an idol? You identify an idol by the person praying that, whatever a person prays that prayer to, okay? That is the idol. It helps to identify the idol in their life. All right, so we need to define idolatry. You can turn to Romans 1 a while. You probably figured we might end up there. But God's image always suffers when we liken him to or represent him with physical things, things of nature. So idolatry is exactly that when we use things of nature to represent God or in a sense make him equal with things of nature. A couple uh, things about idolatry. Idolatry makes something bigger than life. When we glorify a thing, as if it were God instead of God Almighty. Idolatry brings God down to a level where we can manipulate him and make him the way we want to be. 
Um, idolatry is reversing God's creation of man. You see, God made man in his image, but idolatry flips that right around, and it's man making God in man's image. And the convenient thing about idolatry is that it allows us to be deeply religious people, but we get to have the religion our way. See the guy that made his own idol out of wood? We get to make our own God, therefore we get to have our religion our way. As fat, rich, consumeristic Americans living in a sex-saturated culture, we are plagued on every side by idolatrous mindsets that will gladly help us rework God so that he fits our theology better. The essence of idolatry is not that it lifts an idol up, but that it brings God down. And so uh, Romans 1, let's read here beginning in verse 18. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for he, God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So we are to learn about our invisible God by looking at visible creation. That's what these verses are saying. Verse 21, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. So this verse is saying, knowing God is not enough. Knowledge of God requires, it puts a it puts an obligation on us to glorify him and be thankful. If we refuse to glorify him and be thankful, then it says their foolish hearts, our foolish hearts will be darkened. And then verse 22, we profess ourselves to be wise when we're actually fools. We change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. In other words, we take things of nature and we make them out to be as if they were God. Paul Tripp says it this way. He says man's ten tendency is to take sign glory and make it into ultimate glory. So uh, God's glory is ultimate, and sometimes we talk about heaven that way. We say when we get to glory. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, it's when... Um, we're in the presence of this designer, the creator, when everything works the way it was designed to work, okay, in perfection. And so sign glory is like these little windows we get into God's ultimate glory. And a lot of times we try to take those little windows and make them out to be the ultimate thing. Give you some examples. Uh, the heavens, so we might study the stars and call it astronomy. And it quickly gets turned into a religion called what? Astrology. Okay, just change the word a little bit, change the focus a little bit. And so we have now a small g god. We can look at the earth's landscapes, the mountains, the woodlands, the lakes, the rivers, the beaches, the fresh snow, and the air. And it gets turned into a small g god called Mother Nature, maybe. Okay? at, uh, you know, all sorts of 
things wrapped up in this idea of mother nature. You know, what is mother nature? Okay. Um, so all sorts of new age-ish sorts of things in that. And then uh, the creatures, the animals, uh, wildlife watching, wildlife photography, fishing, hunting, uh, can get turned into small g gods as an obsession that competes with other things, with true worship, with Christian responsibility. Or uh, people who are image bearers of God. Um, we have man-made stuff. We have cities, architecture, art, fashion, culture, social networking, uh, marriage, and sexuality. And that can very quickly get turned into people worship, where we take the thing of nature and it's a little window into God's glory, and we make it out to be um, as if it were the ultimate glory. So all of these things point us towards God's glory, but they are not the same as God's glory. To glorify these natural physical things without recognizing their source in God will rob God of the glory he deserves whenever Whenever we try to wring pleasure and glory and satisfaction out of any created thing without recognizing the creator, we start down this slippery slope that Romans gives us. Um, we're left down and we're unfulfilled. And then we begin to deny God and his glory. And then we're set up for the bait and switch that the devil does where we glorify the created thing over the creator. The devil feeds us all of these wonderful things and says, this is it. This is ultimate glory. It's the bait and switch. And then we become addicted to that natural thing and we begin to worship that natural thing and uh, the devil has us. We take that natural thing as if it were ultimate glory. Verses 24 to 27 uh, goes on to describe that downward spiral of sin. And it ends up in verse 26, for this God, for this cause, God gave them up to vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burn in their lusts one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their heir, which was meat. And so sexual perversion, or we could call it sexual idolatry, is the most evident or most clear example of sign glory that gets turned into um, ultimate glory. So we could ask the question, what is the porn, act, porn addict really doing? He's worshiping bodies that don't belong to him or her. He's giving glory to a created thing instead of the creator. He's feeding on sign glory that is not aligned with ultimate glory because it is outside of God's boundaries. He's not really any different than that man who carved out that idol out of wood and fell down in front of it and said, deliver me for thou art my God. That's really what the porn addict is doing. All right, a few practical applications. We could talk about um, that for a long time. Uh, practical applications for how to admire nature but not deny the designer. So I think if we're saying God is the designer, then we have to say of our activities, we have to ask, 
well, does this activity fit God's design? Because if it doesn't fit God's design, um, then it is not, um, it's not worthwhile. So, outdoor recreation. How much can you hunt, fish, ski, boat, vacation, and enjoy all of the outdoors until it's idolatry? Good, you had the same answer I did. We can move on to the next thing. Um, no. Well, what's your motivation for doing those things? Okay, is your motivation for doing those things God's glory? Do you find satisfaction in the sign glory? Uh, that you receive while you do these things. So if you're doing all these things, hunt, fish, ski, boat, vacation, when you get done with those things, you should come home and you should be very satisfied. If you've seen the sign glory, whether, okay, you take a trip out west and you see all that sign glory, you should come home very satisfied because it gave you a little window into God's ultimate glory. Does it leave you very satisfied? or does it leave you amped up for the next trip, okay? Um, so that's one indication. If it leaves you peaceful, it might be a little window. If it leaves you restless, it might be the idol. Uh, another thing you could ask yourself, um, do, do these activities, your outdoor recreation activities, do you enjoy them at the expense of the things that obviously fit in God's design? Are you doing them on Sunday? Are they taking you away from a day of worship or toward a day of worship? Uh, I think our church covenant says uh, Sunday is to be a day of worship, rest, devotion, and fellowship. So those are four good words you should put in your day for Sunday. Try to keep it that way. Um, fathers, are you enjoying these things at the expense of being the God-ordained head of the home? Okay, see, father can't be done remotely. You can do a lot of work remotely, but you can't do father remotely and you can't do mother remotely. Okay, it has to be hands-on. And so uh, if you're doing these things at the expense of uh, fathering or mothering, maybe um, it's an idol instead of the little window into God's glory. On the other hand, family is a unit of people, right? Family is a unit of people. And how do you get people to actually do things together these days? When you have four vehicles in the house or five phones and, okay, distraction. So I think outdoor recreational activities are great to bring people together in that sort of way, right? It brings people together into an activity that multiple ages can do. And so whether you're hiking or biking or camping or kayaking, I think those things are a great way to get your family out there in nature. And when you're done, you have this feeling of satisfaction. We got a little window into God's glory by our activities. All right, we could say a lot more here. Let's go to the conclusion. The question was, what is the one created thing in nature that can most distinctly and most accurately represent the designer God? And the answer is sun. Okay, the sun, as, which kind of sun? The one that gives light. Okay, S-U-N, okay. There's a tremendous, well, that runs everything, okay, so that's good. 
What are the rest of you thinking? Okay, people, and your your reasoning there. People are. Okay, people are made in the image of God. So um, back to the sun, that is actually a great illustration because God is what? God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. I was thinking of what Sue said, uh, people. Uh, What is the one thing in nature that can most distinctly and most accurately represent the designer God? You all raise your hand because it's you, okay? You were made in the design that God determined, you're made in his image, and you are the one um, who can best and most accurately represent his design um, for a person, okay? And that becomes then a testimony um, to others around us. So we must admire nature and acknowledge the designer, and we must capitalize on that admiration of nature because other people Christian and non-Christian come alongside of us and they admire what we're admiring. And if they're non-Christians coming alongside of us, we should elbow them and we should say, do you see the design? Do you see what I see? This is what I see. Is that what you see? And then uh, point them towards, uh, yeah, be in a relationship where you can continue egging them or on towards uh, knowing the designer as you know him. All right, thank you for your attention. I'll turn it back over for a song, I believe.